1952, a company called AB Cryptotechnic, which was founded in Stockholm by a man who patented the C-36 mechanical cipher machine, which looked a bit like a fancy typewriter and was used by governments and militaries to encrypt secret messages, was re-established in Switzerland by a Russian-born Swede named Boris Hagelin, who was an early investor in the company. As part of that re-establishment, the company was renamed Crypto AG, and Hagelin's goal was to start selling this device to the burgeoning U.S. military, which was a goal he accomplished after relocating to the States in 1940, right after Germany invaded Norway. And his device made it into the hands of the U.S. Signal Intelligence Service codebreakers for use during World War II. The company ended up making 140,000 of these encryption devices for American troops during that conflict, and their utility and some of the relationships Hagelin was able to build while in the U.S. got Crypto AG in with the new deputy commander of the CIA and the chief cryptologist of the NSA. Crypto AG moved back to Switzerland after World War II, mostly to avoid taxes. But Hagelin kept in touch with folks at the top of U.S. spy agencies, playing ball with these important clients, even to the point of agreeing not to sell his devices to some governments, and agreeing to only sell older, easier-to-code-break devices to others. In the mid-1970s, in the midst of the Cold War, Crypto AG was secretly purchased by the CIA and the West German intelligence agency, the BND, for $5.75 million. The company continued to operate as if this purchase had not taken place and as if the company hadn't been selling outdated cryptographic technology to some of their clients at the behest of U.S. agencies for years. Thus, governments and militaries around the world continued to use Crypto AG devices and services to send private, sensitive messages, and the U.S. and its allies continued to easily crack the cryptography used because they had knowledge of how to easily knock out the ciphers produced by those outdated machines, and in some cases because they helped write the instruction manuals for newer machines that were provided to certain countries. And because of how those manuals were written, those countries wouldn't be able to use the full capabilities of those newer machines, and the U.S. and West Germany in particular, would be able to crack their codes reliably and in far less time than would otherwise be required. There was some speculation, beginning in the mid-1980s, that the U.S. had somehow managed to crack Crypto AG's codes or infiltrated their supply chains as U.S. agencies under the Reagan administration seemed to know things they could only know had they cracked these purportedly very high-quality codes. The company denied that their services or devices had been compromised in any way and that any secret relationship with U.S. agencies that would allow them to bypass their cryptography existed. 
Some journalists, after doing in-depth investigations into the matter, accused Crypto AG of collaborating with the U.S., the British, and West German intelligence agencies, even going so far as to allow them to write instruction manuals for their products and rigging the devices that they sold to favor these agencies. Accusations that were almost entirely true, but which continued to be denied by the company and by these agencies at the time which allowed Crypto AG to continue offering their services to their clients unabated. In 2015, some documents related to this period and this collection of spying tools were declassified, and many of those journalists making those accusations back in the 80s and 90s were vindicated. Then in 2020, investigations conducted by the Washington Post, German public service television broadcaster ZDF, and German broadcasting company SRF unveiled more of the story, including that Crypto AG was entirely controlled by the CIA and BND intelligence agencies, and that from the end of World War II until 2018, all services sold by this company were compromised because of this relationship, making it one of the most successful and long-lasting intelligence-gathering efforts in modern history, allowing the U.S. and its allies to spy on Iran, Latin American military juntas, India and Pakistan, the Vatican, the United Nations, almost all major players in the world over the course of those relevant decades, actually, other than the Soviet Union and China neither of which used crypto AG's services, but whose activities could often be illuminated by looking at the private messages shared about them by other world leaders and diplomats. The BND left this arrangement in the early 1990s, but the U.S. kept it going until 2018, when the company's assets were sold off to Psi One Security and Crypto International two business entities that each claim they have no ongoing relationships with any national intelligence agency. But then that's what Crypto AG contended for decades as well. So it's hard to say whether that's the case with these new offshoots, one of which is run by some of the same people who managed its predecessor. One of the most interesting aspects of this story is that while the CIA and Germany intelligence agencies gleaned top-secret information about countries and militaries around the world through their secret ownership of this company, they also continued running it as a successful and generally well-regarded business. They made millions of dollars in profits, which they then used to fund other secret operations. And all of this is only known to us today in the detail we now know it because of documents that were leaked to these journalistic entities by someone who had access to internal histories of this and other covert missions that they believed should be made public. And these stories likely wouldn't have been known to us in this detail, at least not any time in the near future, had they not leaked them. What I'd like to talk about today is whistleblowers leaks and hacks and what we're learning about how businesses, governments, and powerful individuals operate as a consequence of these sometimes illegal, sometimes just risky or frowned upon methods of public divulgence. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
I'm going to use four different articles to establish the framework for this episode, and each of them present a somewhat different facet of the larger meta-story of the role leaks and hacks and whistleblowing are playing in today's interconnected world, in which we know so much about so much but a great deal is still kept from us, the public. And arguably, in some cases, that's perfectly legitimate. But you could also argue in those same cases that such privacy might be desired by and in the interest of some company or agency, but not necessarily in the interest of everybody else. The first piece comes from The Verge, and it's entitled, Tim Cook says employees who leak memos do not belong at Apple according to leaked memo. We might categorize this as one of the more seemingly harmless, actually quite funny, examples of a leak, in large part because the CEO of Apple, a very large and rich and powerful company that prioritizes secrecy, has been quoted in a leak saying that leaks are not okay. Beyond the potential for some low-level schadenfreude, though, this piece demonstrates something meaningful about the corporate and arguably organizational and governmental world as well. Privacy is cherished because a lack of privacy might expose the soft underbelly of a given entity to the world, making it ostensibly at least more vulnerable, but it can also expose merely less than flattering aspects of the company, which might contrast jarringly with the version of itself that it would prefer to show the world, often via highly polished and expensive campaigns and events. So while this is still kind of a funny leak, it also shows us that those up top in such organizations are very keen to maintain their high-polish, outward-facing veneer, perhaps especially during periods of high turnover and a higher-than-usual potential for culture clashes and ideological discordance. This leaked memo about leaks was sent out after the contents of an internal meeting were leaked, and that loss of control by those in charge may not represent anything damaging this time around. But if such leaks continue unabated, it could very well spell disaster for this or any other company that suffers the same at some point in the future. The second piece is from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, The Facebook Whistleblower Frances Haugen Says She Wants to Fix the Company, Not Harm It. The Wall Street Journal has been on a bit of a tear these past few weeks, publishing a series of investigations based on leaked documents from someone who was in a position to have access to such documents and who was concerned the information they contained would remain under wraps, even though, in this person's estimation, they were relevant to conversations happening throughout society and governments worldwide, and knowledge of them could help lead to better outcomes, while concealment of them could result in more negative outcomes. The person who leaked these documents in this case, a whistleblower, not just a leaker, because she wanted to blow the whistle on something not okay that was happening under secretive conditions, is named Frances Haugen. And she went public recently in this journal piece, but also via an interview on the CBS TV program 60 Minutes. Haugen was a product manager at Facebook who helped prevent election interference on the platform. 
but she resigned and left the company in May of 2021 because, she has said, her group wasn't given sufficient resources to do their job, and she felt the company was prioritizing growth and engagement metrics ahead of dealing with the many negative impacts it knew based on internal research it was having on users. The public and governmental conversation around Facebook and social networks more broadly has been amplified in recent years, in part because of the negative psychological consequences these networks seem to have on some groups of people, but also because of their seeming amplification and enabling of the spreading of misinformation, doxing and harassment, and the organization of various types of criminal network. Before she left, she looked around the company's network for evidence of these sorts of issues and found a whole lot of data backing up the suppositions being made by other people and groups outside the company that the company itself was aware of but not making public. She leaked these documents and this data to the Wall Street Journal, and they did what journalistic entities do when they receive leaks of this kind. They checked its veracity, and launched investigations into the information and claims that they made, discovering, among other things, that Facebook has special rules that they apply to the rich and famous, their algorithms favor and foster anger and discord, that drug cartels and human traffickers openly use its services, and that Instagram, one of Facebook's popular sub-brands, can have a very negative effect on teenage girls' mental health. All of which, again, is not new information in the sense that a lot of external groups and individuals have suspected or claimed or even produced evidence of these issues previously. It's just that now there was documentary evidence to further support these claims, which also demonstrated that Facebook and the people running the company were both aware of these issues and either actively suppressing information about it or just ignoring the data in favor of other, to them, more relevant metrics like growth and income. The third article comes from The Daily Dot, which has been doing more up-to-the-minute reporting on this particular story than any other entity that I'm aware of, and it's entitled Anonymous Releases Data on Texas GOP in Latest Epic Hack Dump. The hacker collective Anonymous recently perpetrated a hack against a web hosting company called Epic, with a K which is best known for being willing and perhaps even preferring to host websites for entities that other hosts don't want to deal with, that they don't want any part of. And that includes prominent far-right personality Ali Alexander, who had a slew of domains related to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol building, and who apparently tried to erase his connection to them after things got violent and charges started to be leveled against those involved. And the far-right anti-government organization The Oath Keepers, which apparently had big plans for that January 6th event, most of which... Fortunately, for those they intended to execute, did not pan out. And the white nationalist group, the Proud Boys, which was recently designated a terrorist organization in Canada, alongside a collection of business people, law enforcement officials, active and retired military personnel, smaller neo-Nazi groups, and individuals who were connected to an array of anti-Semitic, anti-women, anti-LGBTQ, anti-pretty-much-everything 
websites. It also hosts, or has hosted, far-right social network Gab, internet forum mostly dedicated to intentionally offensive and hateful materials, 8chan, and a collection of sites dedicated to child pornography. This hack unveiled the previously shadowy figures behind these anti-everything web entities, but it also gleaned API keys which allowed these groups and individuals to privately talk to one another, and login credentials for payment platforms like PayPal and Coinbase, and social networks like Twitter. This story takes an interesting turn from there, as the owner of Epic, a man named Rob Monster, which yes, is his real name, at first denied any hack had taken place, then hosted a four-plus-hour-long video conference in which he warned anyone looking at these hacked documents stolen from his servers that their hard drives were now cursed and would burst into flames before breaking into elaborate prayer several times and then also attempting to slay demons. There is no official word on how successful that attempt turned out to be. This story has stretched out to encompass several weeks at this point, in part because Anonymous keeps coming back with more data and more detailed offerings stemming from this hack, which initially seemed to be limited to just a data dump, but then eventually encompassed all of those logins, all of those APIs that previously allowed for secure communication between this company's clients. And as of the day I'm recording this, essentially a full-blown bootable disk image of the company's servers. But it has also become more drawn out because these leaked documents, now available to anyone, who searches for them, are unveiling more involved parties and more data about what they've been up to behind the scenes, including, most recently, the Texas Republican Party, which apparently used this service, in part, to store private documents and drafted articles that didn't line up with the public messaging they eventually decided to utilize, which could potentially provide insight into their actual intentions and next moves at a moment in which they are embroiled in numerous different sorts of political and ideological controversy. So this is a leak of sorts, but rather than the information that's made available publicly having been attained by a whistleblower within the company, it was acquired by outside activists who hacked into the company's infrastructure, copied it, and then released that copy to the world. And there's likely to be quite a bit more fallout from this hack and its accompanying divulgences, though there's already been some blowback for some of the individuals involved, including those linked to those hate-filled websites that they previously ran anonymously. But Epic itself is probably suffering the majority of fallout from this right now, as it's not looking like a terribly secure place to keep such information and to host such files and platforms after having been so publicly and thoroughly owned. And finally, the fourth article comes from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, and it's entitled Pandora Papers, the largest investigation in journalism history, exposes a shadow financial system that benefits the world's most rich and powerful. This is not a single article, but rather an information hub linking to a variety of pieces that have been investigated 
and which are being written about by more than 600 journalists from 150 news outlets worldwide using a bundle of more than 11.9 million leaked documents as source material. These documents show how money, real estate, and other such assets are concealed using offshore accounts and how the secretive offshore tax haven-oriented system works, while also unmasking some of the people and entities making use of it. Among those people and entities are 35 current and former world leaders, more than 330 politicians and public officials in 91 countries and territories, quite a few celebrities and star athletes and criminals and financiers and lawyers and gang leaders, and Vladimir Putin and the King of Jordan and the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, and the list just goes on and on. Like the epic hack, this will almost certainly result in a long-term collection of stories. Though what's already been published has been interesting, and in some cases very uncomfortable for the people and organizations whose private dealings and investments and money funneling, and in some cases wealth-concealing activities, have been outed in this way. This reporting clarifies how the world's rich and powerful are able to play by different rules than the rest of us, how they're able to dodge taxes, legally and illegally, and in some cases what they're doing with wealth that can't be easily accounted for based on the income they supposedly earn from their official responsibilities and activities. This is especially true of current and former world leaders who have been caught with fortunes and assets far exceeding what they've formally said they own in official documents, which begs the question of where and how they've attained this wealth and what that might mean for the work they're doing and who might be influencing them monetarily. This leak is a follow-up to three other major leaks of similar information the offshore leaks, the Panama Papers, and the Paradise Papers. But this is the largest such data dump, topping the others in terms of size and scope. And again, not all such activities are illegal. In fact, most such activities are legal, according to the letter of the law. They're just surprising, even shocking, to many people who are not privy to such services because it flies in the face of the spirit of the law, or because these acts contrast with the claims and ideological positioning of some of these public figures. We don't know who the source or sources are for this particular batch of leaked documents, but it would seem to be another case of someone in a position to have access to such documents, thinking that the public would benefit from being able to see them, despite the entity for which they work probably not benefiting in the same way, similar to what happened with Facebook recently. At the same time, there is a similarity to what went down with Epic here, too, as these documents expose the, at times, bad behaviors of people who are now seeing consequences for what they've been doing behind the scenes, which could, in turn, change those behaviors. It could change the laws and the regulations related to them. Or, if nothing else, it could merely expose some bad actors for who they are, attaching their private machinations with their public, usually more polished and socially acceptable face, which is a component of this that lines up a bit with that Apple leak. Leaks 
and hacks and whistleblowing are contentious, and rightfully so. They can benefit society in that they can allow us to see more of the substructure underneath what seems like normal reality to most of us, and that can allow us to make better choices, elect better leaders, and so on. They can also, though, harm organizations and individuals whose only crime was to do what everyone else in their economic class is doing. And such divulgences can sometimes cause perceptual harm to people who get caught up in document drops that paint an unclear or inaccurate picture of who they are and why they did what they did. There are a lot of both legal and rational reasons to conceal one's assets, for instance. And that fact can get lost in the larger conversation when most of the focus is placed on the big scandals and bad intentions associated with many of these activities. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Arab of the Future, A Childhood in the Middle East, 1978 through 1984, a graphic memoir by Riyad Satouf. This is a graphic novel, and if you're familiar with Persepolis, it's in a very similar vein to that, somewhat in terms of subject matter, but also because it's often quite funny and charming, but it's also very dark and sad at times. And like Persepolis, it does a good job of commemorating a moment in time from the perception of an individual who doesn't understand everything that's happening around them. And in this case, that moment in time is growing up in France and Libya and Syria in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And hopefully this isn't too much of a spoiler, but there was quite a bit happening in those regions at those periods of time. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Arab of the Future by Riyad Satouf. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a bunch of links to my other projects at understandery.com. And do feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.